This is a special edition of the Citizen of Heaven podcast. I'm Hal Hammond, Citizen of Heaven, your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for listening, sharing, and subscribing. It's almost unfair for me to describe the books in this week's list as disappointing. In most situations, the fault is entirely mine. I had unreasonable or inaccurate preconceptions before starting the books, and then they naturally let me down when I realized what they truly were. In any event, I did not enjoy these experiences as much as the others I have had this year. As always, your mileage may vary. The first book I want to talk about, I can't lay my hands on. I don't know why. It's, it's vanished. But uh, it's iRobot by Isaac Asimov. And that's a good example of what I'm talking about with regard to preconceived notions and presuppositions. I saw the film, Steven Spielberg's film with uh, Will, Will Smith, way back in the day, uh, iRobot, and I enjoyed it very much. I knew at the time, of course, that it was based on the Isaac Asimov book or the collection of short stories, as it were. The book forms a foundation for the film in the sense that the three laws of robots are given. The three laws, if I remember right, are that a robot cannot harm a human being, a robot uh, cannot disobey a human being, except in, in preference to the first law, and then a robot cannot harm another robot, except... Uh, with regard to the other two laws, something along those lines anyway. Very, very basic, very rudimentary, and it forms the the foundation for this entire book. The storyline in the film has nothing to do with the book other than the three laws. That's, as far as I can tell, that's the only overlap at all. I was kind of hoping to see Will Smith in there somewhere. I was hoping to see some kind of fleshed out version of the film because that's the way I like to read books that are made into films. I like to see backstory. I like to see thought processes, the things that you can't really capture in a film. Generally, the book is better than the film in my experience, and I was hoping to have a good experience with regard to that. I did not understand what iRobot was. That's not Isaac Asimov's fault, obviously. That's my fault. Uh, the book is fine as far as it goes. It's, it's science fiction. And we're going to run into a couple of other science fiction books as we go here. And I, I think I've about decided I just don't like science fiction. I don't read a whole lot of science fiction. I've, I'm not especially enjoying the science fiction books that I've been reading this year. I'm trying to broaden myself a little bit. I have a sci-fi uh, idea for an episode that I'm, I'm trying to pursue that may or may not come together. In October, Lord willing, I plan on doing an entire month full of monsters uh, Halloween and all that kind of thing. And one of the monsters that I wanted to focus on was robots. And so I thought maybe iRobot would fit. And maybe it will. I don't know. But uh, it did not turn out to be the read that I was hoping that it would be. That's, again, on me. Uh, book number two, similarly sci-fi, is Out of the Silent Planet by C.S. Lewis. I've heard for years that C.S. Lewis wrote sci-fi, a particular trilogy, including Paralandra and That Hideous Strength, is... Uh, one of his very early writing episodes before Blind the Witch and the Wardrobe, if I remember right, the idea was that he was going to use sci-fi as a way of illustrating spiritual truths. And, and I could see it in there. There is a Jesus figure. There is a Heavenly Father figure. There's The story basically goes that this poor, unsuspecting human gets kidnapped and taken to Mars by people who are trying to explore Mars and build a world there, et cetera. It's, it's kind of convoluted. Again, I didn't especially enjoy it. It's not that there's anything wrong with with the book. It's just it's a typical sci-fi kind of thing, and I tend to zone out with regard to those kind of things. The important thing, as far as I can tell with the book, as with a lot of other 
religious allegories is that you see human problems in a different kind of context. And maybe with a little bit of distance, you can see, well, we're just not focusing on the right kind of things. We're prideful, we're arrogant, etc. And the book does a fine job of bringing all of that out. It's I don't especially like the style. That's that's all that is. Maybe I was hoping that C.S. Lewis would turn me around with regard to sci-fi, and, and he didn't. So anyway, it's not a bad book. This is not a book for me. I Love the Silent Planet by C.S. Lewis. A couple of books to uh, to put together here. Uh, first of all, Beethoven or Bust, which is written by David Hurwitz, and then uh, Beethoven and the Spiritual Path, that is written by uh, oh, I can't remember his name. David Tame wrote this one. I'll get to that in a second. I had it in my mind that I wanted to do an entire month of Beethoven, and I have more or less talked myself out of that. I just have way too many ideas right now with regard to the things that that I want to cover and. I'm not sure there's a whole lot of market out there. You can inform me one way or the other if you are a, a regular listener. And if you're interested in four weeks worth of Beethoven conversation, then by all means, let me know. I'd be perfectly willing to do it. I have plenty of material for that kind of thing. But uh, the, the books that I've picked up to guide my process with regard to Beethoven have have underachieved, underwhelmed here, as you can tell. Two of them made the, the top ten list. I have a couple more that I haven't read yet. None of these four, by the way, is a legitimate biography of Beethoven. Uh, three others, actually. I read one, and there's two that I have not read. As you can tell, I'm on a bit of a Beethoven kick here. And I'm really inspired by the story of Beethoven, and I have taken a lot of joy, a lot of of pleasure in the last six months to a year or so going back to my roots, studying more about, about classical music and, and listening to it and finding pleasure there. And, and I was hoping that I could read this book, Beethoven or Bust, and learn enough about music where I could appreciate it better. If you, if you love something, you want to learn more about it. That's just kind of a natural sort of thing, I suppose. And to a certain degree, I did. I mean, I learned more about what a concerto is or what a sonata is and uh, why symphonies are put together the way they are and, and things of that nature. But half of the book, almost half of the book, is a concerted effort to help you understand classical music better. Great, that's what I wanted. But unfortunately, it takes an awful lot of work and an awful lot of time and energy Basically, what you do is you listen to four pieces of music that are themed together. Maybe they're all about war, or maybe they're all about courage, or they're all about three, four time, or whatever it happens to be. You uh, listen to all these in context, from different contexts, from different centuries, etc. And this is going to help you in your music experience. I don't doubt that it would. But (laughs) this is the same reason I got out of... uh, classical music back in my violin days, back in my piano days, way back in the day. Getting good at something takes a lot of time and a lot of effort, and I'm just not prepared to do that. I think there are 52, 50, 88, I was mistaken, 88 different sets of conversations uh, that you're supposed to have. You read these or listen to these four pieces of music, all of which are going to take you know half an hour to an hour, and use that experience to, uh, to heighten your experience. I'm not going to listen to that much music. I'm just not going to do it. I have a life. I have a job. And and I have a secondary job with the podcast here. I have a family. I have other things I want to do with my life. If at the end of the day, if after spending 100 to 150 hours listening to classical music, I didn't spend a nickel 
and I got some kind of certificate or a, a degree in music theory or whatever, that might be one thing, but that's not going to happen. And I don't have the hundred hours to spare in the first place. So I'm going to have to pass on that. It was an interesting exercise, but it did not get me where I wanted to go because I was not prepared to do what it took to get there. That sounds like actually a pretty good podcast idea there right there. So maybe I'll come back to Beethoven or bust at some point in the future. Beethoven and the spiritual path is somewhat different. I had heard that Beethoven was a very spiritual individual, that he uh, was a believer, maybe not uh, practicing in his religious beliefs as much as, as he might, but nevertheless interested in such things, and that it motivated his music, it motivated his composition. His most famous piece of music, of course, is the Ode to Joy the in the last movement of Symphony Number no. 9. That is a, a hymn, basically. I have a version of it in the, the hymn book that we sing it, that we sing out of at Lakewoods Drive. You probably have heard it as well. Very closely thematically connected to the message of the symphony. Maybe not exactly religious, maybe not exactly intended to praise God, but certainly leaning in that direction. And so when I heard about the spiritual path, I thought that maybe I'm going to have some kind of exposition on his faith and practice of faith and how it, it fed into his music. That's not what this book is at all. And, and I ought to know better than that. When you see the the idea of spiritual or the spiritual path, uh, that is a buzz phrase for the New Age movement, and that's what this book is about. It's the most New Agey book I think I have ever read, and and it's like a whole lot of other topics that I just don't know very much about. I'm not qualified to speak as to whether the assertions of someone who clearly has an agenda, whose life view is very, very different from mine. I'm just not in position to know how valid all these observations are, and that kind of leaves me in in a bit of a quandary. Like, for instance, the author suggests that Beethoven's odd-numbered symphonies are masculine and his even-numbered symphonies are feminine. I don't know exactly how that flies in the modern climate where we're trying to erase the distinctions between men and women in, in human ranks. I don't know if that applies to symphonies or not. And, and I don't know how legitimate an observation that is. I know this is not the only guy who makes an observation like that. I've done a little bit of digging with regard to that kind of thing. What makes a feminine symphony? What makes a masculine symphony? I tend very strongly to think it's a bunch of nonsense. But again, I'm not in a position to know one way or the other. I have a choice, I guess. I can either dig harder and find out more, which maybe I will, or I can just kind of let it go and decide this is not worth my while, which I may do that too. Time will will tell. If anyone is interested in a new age episode of of the podcast, let me know. If I do one of those, this is likely to come up in conversation. The whole age of Aquarius and and astrology and and things of that nature, all of that is tied into Beethoven's music, allegedly. Whether it's true or not, couldn't say one way or the other. Anyway, um, Prayer and Providence by Homer Haley. I feel bad about putting this book on this, this list. I feel really bad about it. And this is a classic example of what I was mentioning before. I've had this book on my shelf for maybe 20 years and never read it. I can't explain why that is the case. I have the utmost respect for Brother Haley's scholarship, and I have several several of his other books. You may be able to see one or two on my shelf if you're watching the video here. It's uh, He is 
probably the biggest thinker I have ever met with regard to spiritual things. Don't agree with him on everything, as is always the case, but uh, God will be the judge of us all. I've had this, this book on prayer and providence, two topics that I am fascinated by, two topics that I uh, acknowledge freely. I don't know everything there is to know about, things that I ought to study more, and at some point, I suppose this year, I decided, you know what, if I have questions about prayer and I have questions about providence, maybe I should read Homer Haley's book entitled Prayer and Providence, and the lights will all go on. And that was an unreasonable burden to put on Brother Haley, and I I feel that now. It, it's not that the book is a bad book. It's not a bad book. But I think that I probably went into it with the understanding, with the thought process that this man who is so much smarter than me, this man who knows the Bible so much better than me, is surely going to have some kind of insight into these processes that I had not considered before. Some some brand new light bulb kind of moment is going to come to me, and all of a sudden I'm going to st- understand about prayer and I'm going to understand about providence. I did not have that experience. That, again, is not said to be critical of Brother Haley or of the book. If you have not read the book, you ought to read the book. It's it's a great study of what prayer is and what prayer is supposed to be, what providence is, how God interacts with people in the, in the modern day. Uh, it was not especially remarkable with regard to its insights, but I've been studying these topics for 50 years now. Exactly how many passages have I not read with regard to these kind of things? Anyway, have reasonable expectations of the authors that you read. I suppose that's kind of the takeaway that I have with regard to prayer and providence. Don't assume that every book is going to change your life. Every book is going to change the way that you look at things. If you are conscientious, if you care about prayer, and I like to think that I do, it's it's not reasonable to think that some person, regardless of how highly he may be esteemed by myself or by others, is going to have some kind of insight that's going to just change everything. Maybe you have had that kind of experience. Maybe you're you're blessed with that. If some book has really turned your lights on with regard to prayer or, or anything else, by all means, let me know about it. I'll read that one also. As it is, frustrated that it was not as uh, as insightful as it could have been. Again, that's on me. That's not on Brother Haley. World Without a Superman it requires a little bit of, of backstory here. Uh, I, again, had an idea that I wanted to do a Superman episode. I have some thoughts with regard to that. Most of you are probably aware that there is a long, long history of comparing Superman and Jesus Christ. In fact, basically from the outset, Superman has been seen as a Jesus figure. And I thought, well, that might make for an interesting 20 minutes of conversation. If I did that, then I need to have a book that was about Superman because I don't have one of those. And so I went on on. I went to various bookstores and I went online looking for a a novel depiction of the Superman story and especially the idea of Superman dying. Uh, That was a big deal back in the day. Oh, it was close to 15, almost 20 years ago now that Superman was depicted as dying in the comic books. And I thought that that might make for an interesting conversation. I had long since checked out of comic books in general and Superman in particular. By that point, I had some vague notion They've done some weird stuff with Superman, but they've been messing with my comic book heroes for for years and years and years. I, I I don't really care all that much, to be perfectly honest. But I thought I'd look into it for the podcast, and I found World Without Superman, and uh, there there it is. So I ordered it online, and it's not a book, as you can tell. It's it's a collection of comic books uh, that were uh, part of this story. 
basically there's a, a set of comics that describes how Superman died. I'm not going to get into that. And then there is a, a set of comics contained in this uh, compendium here that is describing the world that existed without Superman. And as this series concludes, the tomb is empty. Superman has been raised from the dead. And that's what the next series is about. Superman coming back from the dead again with the Jesus stuff. And anyway, uh, it was not what I thought it was going to be. It was, it was an interesting experience. I hadn't read comic books in, in so, so long. Uh, I was a little bit interested in how much of a change there would be. And there were some, obviously, but basically the comics are the comics and Superman is Superman. I had missed a lot of backstory. There was a lot of stuff going on with Supergirl and with Lex Luthor and uh, uh, various elements of the Superman story that I thought I understood about and clearly I was was left out of over the last few years. Anyway, it uh, it was not what I was looking for and it was not really what I was hoping for. The Lost Memoir. Lou, and it says Lou Gehrig, and it looks like what this is is an autobiography. It's not an autobiography, really, and that's that's part of the problem. It is a, a memoir, and it was published in newspaper accounts when uh, Lou Gehrig's career was kind of really starting to hum. I have a, a good friend, Matt Basford, who uh, many of you know also, who is going through ALS, otherwise known as Lou Gehrig's disease, and so Lou Gehrig has been kind of on my mind a little bit. I thought maybe a biography or an autobiography of Lou Gehrig would really be the kind of thing I'm looking for these days. Lou Gehrig is a tremendously inspiring character, a baseball player, had a Iron Man hitting streak, uh, et cetera, a Hall of Famer, and then died very shortly after his career was over. If I could get some insights into that, that would be terrific. Well, I didn't. Uh, I didn't at all. This is this so-called memoir is actually just a collection of a handful of newspaper articles that Lou Gehrig wrote as a preview for the World Series. I forget which year it was. It was not intended to be any kind of live story. It was just his insights into this, that, and the other, and a little bit about his background. And, and it was kind of interesting in the sense that it reads so differently from your typical biography, or especially your typical autobiography these days. These days, if you write an autobiography, people want to know about the dirt. They want to hear about the mess that's going on with the person that you worked with or the person you used to be married to or, or whatever. We, we want to hear the, the ugly stuff. We want to hear the dirt. And Lou Gehrig, by all accounts, was just not that kind of a guy. There is all kinds of rumor and secondhand story about him and Babe Ruth, and they didn't really get along all that well, and their animosity and rivalry, et cetera, et cetera. If that was the case, you wouldn't hear about it from here. Gehrig goes on and on about how much he admires Ruth, and he was the, the best player in the game, and one of the reasons why he was interested in baseball in the first place, and and really on and on he goes. It makes for an interesting concept if you wanted to put a meekness episode of your podcast together, because Lou Gehrig was very definitely that that kind of guy. If you're looking for the real scoop, the, the nasty underbelly of baseball, uh, et cetera, Lou Gehrig is not going to tell you that story. And and quite frankly, I appreciate him for that. I think that is a good thing. Uh, that being said, I was not, that's not what I was looking for. I was looking for something that was much more substantial, much more into the uh, the life story of Gehrig, especially his final days. This book just was not that. So that was a mistake on my part. I should have read the notes better than I did. Sins of Fathers by Michael Emmett with 
Harriet Compton. Great discount find here. You know, again, I've talked about the Mardell discount. I think I paid $3 for this. It might have been $1. It wasn't more than $3 anyway. Uh, Michael Emmett is a gangster, a former gangster in the UK. He got himself in a lot of trouble, found Jesus, and and fixed his life. And this is his memoir, basically. And I guess I was looking for some kind of of story about true redemption and and true forgiveness. And basically what it is, is he's blaming his dad for all of his problems. He was raised up in a bad environment, and therefore he acquired bad habits and did a lot of bad things and eventually got caught and uh, and turned his life over to Jesus, allegedly. And I, I don't want to sound just overly skeptical. I don't know Michael Emmett. It's none of my business to, to talk about his conversion experience. But I will say this, that he seems to ha- have a lot more interest in telling us about the knucklehead things he got into as a teenager and as a 20-something and all the criminal enterprises he was involved in versus how Jesus made a difference in his life and why it was uh, such a transformative experience. And uh, anyway, none of my business how you write your autobiography or how Michael Emmett writes his. But uh, nevertheless, it was not nearly as insightful or as inspiring as I was hoping it was going to be. So that's uh, Sins of Fathers. Two more to go. Uh, Road to Mars by Eric Idle. I have a real love-hate relationship, I think it's fair to say, with Monty Python. Uh, we shared the uh, Quest for the Holy Grail film with the girls back in the day. They just absolutely fell in love with it. We we laugh and laugh and laugh, subquote this movie over and over and over again. And yet when the, the really horrific, blasphemous part, God speaking from the heavens and et cetera, we... we that's the great thing about DVDs. You're able to just kind of skip an entire scene and you just blow right past the entire thing. Other than that one section, the film is is pretty hilarious and relatively good, clean entertainment. Uh, I have an issue with people making fun of God or turning God into a big joke or whatever, and, and Monty Python's big on that. Life of Brian apparently is much more that way. I'd probably have much more of an issue with Life of Brian. I haven't really seen Life of Brian, I don't think. Anyway... I saw that Eric Idle had written a book, uh, a fiction book entitled The Road to Mars, and Mars is another topic that I was thinking about going with. The Road to Mars is about comedy, and it's about a robot that is writing the definitive treatise on what makes comedy funny. He has a a very elaborate theory, and clearly this is based on Eric Idle's own speculations and study from a lifetime of trying to make people laugh very successfully. Uh, he has his. I'm not going to get into all the specifics of the ideas, but uh, essentially, it's a story about about a a comedy team that has a robot, and they're going all over the world, all over the solar system. That is running away from harm, getting into trouble, etc. I didn't care for it. It, it. And and if you know much about Monty Python and the use of the English language, you know that it's kind of colorful with regard to that too. Uh, this is no exception. There is a, a lot of nastiness in the road to Mars. I would not recommend that, especially on that on that level. But just from a, a storytelling standpoint, it just didn't do much for me. 
And uh, I haven't done these necessarily in order, but I, I will say this. Overwhelmingly, the very most disappointing book that I have run into this year is Raising Unicorns uh, by Jessica S. Marquis. Uh, Raising Unicorns. Uh, here, here's, here's the problem. The first seven chapters or so are spent in this book telling you how wonderful it would be to own a unicorn farm. And and there is a lot of upside. I had not fully appreciated. You could just have a regular petting zoo and do fine with regard to that. You can turn it into a breeding kind of situation. You can harvest good magic, bad magic. You can harvest both. There are a lot of different ways, a lot of different financial money streams uh, for, for someone who gets into unicorn farming. I knew something was up, though, because... I got all the way to chapter eight before they even discussed how you go about acquiring unicorns. In fact, I about convinced myself that was the whole gag. You, you can't get unicorns, and this is just a whole fantasy here. Well, it's not quite that. But when they finally get around to telling you how to get your unicorns, and I think, again, it's in chapter eight, then you realize why they've been soft-pedaling this, this whole thing. Because the only way you can get unicorns is, one, capture them in the wild, and if a man captures them, they lose their magic. So I'd have to get Kylie or Tracy to go out there and chase them down in the wild. They're not especially interested in that. Or you can buy one from a, a already established unicorn breeder. I checked. There's no unicorn breeders in Central Texas, as far as I can tell. Or you can get one as an inheritance from some crazy rich uncle who who gives it to you. I have a hunch that would have come up in conversation if I had somebody in the family that raised unicorns as a sideline. I think I would have heard about that. That would have come up at Thanksgiving at some point in the last 50 years, which basically leaves me out. There's no way that I could ever have unicorns, and so therefore there's no way that I could ever raise unicorns. Uh, that is a great example there of of heightened expectations and a, and a real, real major letdown there at the end. I do not recommend this as a financial endeavor. If you want to invest uh, two or $3, if you find it in the, in the bookstore discounted and you just want to get a chuckle out of it, you can do that. But if you're really interested in raising unicorns as a side project, as a, as a hustle, I think you're going to be very, very disappointed, but good luck to you one way or the other. Anyway, that is 10 books that have disappointed me on one level or another. I have mentioned several of them that may fit in with a podcast episode at some point. If you have a special interest in some of these, by all means, let me know. Next week, again, Lord willing, we are going to be talking about the best books that I have read this year so far, and there have been some real real winners. And I don't know that you have heard of any of them, maybe one or two I've mentioned on the podcast already. Mostly they are untapped resources that you will definitely be hearing about in a podcast episode at some point in the near future. Thank you for listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Please rate, review, and share so others can access this content. I encourage you also to join the Heaven Citizens Facebook group. There you will find links to related materials, conversation starters, poll questions, and the occasional special announcement. Also, check out the Hal Hammonds channel on YouTube for even more content. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, Citizen of Heaven, signing off. <laughs>